Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Perhaps you've had a moment in uh, which you were uh, somewhat possessed by an egomaniacal spirit, maybe, and, uh, and somebody warned you, you know, you shouldn't try to play God. Don't play God. To play God means to behave as if one is all-powerful or supremely important, you know, overstepping your, your bounds. You know, lots of people can play uh, God or try to play God with disastrous results. I was... Uh, Watching a series, I forget uh, which, which platform it came from, called Dr. Death, uh, in which it was about this, uh, this surgeon who was a really terrible surgeon who put many people in pain and caused the death of certain individuals because uh, he would perform these risky surgeries with very low expectations of success. He was playing God. The presidents play God all the time, you know. Uh, they, they like to make wars that have it seems, very few positive yields, and yet thousands and thousands of people are devastated and nations are destroyed. Uh, inventors can play God. You know, Facebook just became meta. I don't know what that means, <laughs> and neither do you, but meta's a big word. Doesn't sound good. That's all I'm saying. Uh, in literature, we see the danger of uh, dangers of playing God. We have, of course, Dr. Frankenstein, who plays God by creating, uh, against his good sense and against the advice of counsel, uh, creating the creature, which uh, has a murderous life of its own and a tragic life of its own. We see this in Henry Jekyll, who believes that he can uh, separate good from evil in human beings via this potion, and then he can annihilate the evil portion, but he ends up being taken over by the evil portion and becomes uh, Edward Hyde. That's why it's so shocking to me, distressing and unadvisable that Paul, in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, invites us to play God. I would never have written that. It would have been too dangerous, in my mind, to write such a thing. But that's what he writes. He says it right from the start. Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Well, that's what I'm going to speak about this morning. I'm going to talk about mirroring and modeling as they relate to imitation of God. So what I'm going to do with you this morning is focus on verses 1 and 2. So bracket that off in your bulletin or in your Bible, verses 1 through 2, because there is enough uh, theology in those verses uh, to take up eight sermons, but I only have one. Um, But I do now want to offer you an excursus, that is a brief side comment about verses uh, 3 through 21, which are very important. And this will only take a moment, but I do want to say it because in verses 3 through 21, Paul says some pretty hot things because he's warning Christians against adopting uh, certain sin patterns that he sees as not only uh, evident but prominent within the Gentile context of Ephesus. He sees three things. He keeps coming back to them. 
He sees people that use their speech in derogatory ways. He sees people coveting stuff that doesn't belong to them. And he sees people abusing the gift of sexuality. How unique to the first century? Um, not really, right? I mean, like he couldn't write things that are more apropos for our own moment. You know, lots of people use their speech in uh, denigrating ways. I mean, everybody in this room, I, I wouldn't doubt it at least, I'd put money on the fact that everybody in this room has been significantly hampered emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually by the jagged, machete-like words that were offered to you by your father when he was drunk or your mother when she was enraged or some grandfather or some friend or whatever. And you've been completely devastated by it. And you still are. Or sexual immorality, right? Uh, that's when you go outside the boundaries of what God has set in the created order. And, uh, and, and, who, um, and lots of people in this room, lots of people in this room have made love to somebody they shouldn't have made love to, and it actually has affected you. Um, and no matter how much like, you want to talk about sexual positivity, it's not always awesome, and uh, sometimes like, it can be dehumanizing, in fact. And he doesn't want that to be emulated. And covetousness. I mean, we live in a world of social media where we're always trying to uh, out-beautify somebody else. And also we have that horrific abomination that causes desolation right down the road called the Outlet Mall, um, which, like, I'll tell you what, that or Costco, it's like hell. It's like the worst place in the world. Um, I hate every waking moment of being there. There it is. Um, so yeah, I, I've spoken very clearly now. But like we are a culture that, that has eyes for people and eyes for things that do not belong to us. These are, the, these are the diseases, the vices that he sees as prominent within his Ephesian context. Uh, and so he, as a rebuke to society, Paul says that these three things are evidences of damnation. When people are possessed by these impulses, uh, with no corresponding graces, these people do not inherit the kingdom of God. People that misuse their mouths, people that misuse their bodies, people that desire what they don't have. Now, I want to tell you right from the start that Christians, Christian preachers and Christian interpreters have often misinterpreted and mispreached these difficult passages. And here's how they do it. I'm going to give you a warning right now. So if you hear sermons in the future, you'll understand the misuse of these texts. Here's what people sometimes say. Well, these texts are there to really make you feel insecure in some sense, about your solidity in God. Because if you do any of these things, either you have lost your salvation or you were never saved to begin with because if you were, you wouldn't be engaging in any of these behaviors. So in other words, this, these passages are often used to manipulate uh, uh, Christian strugglers into believing that they aren't Christians at all. Now that's ridiculous and wrong for a variety of reasons. Um, first of all, Paul is not here... Um, writing uh, to slam strugglers like he calls himself the chief of sinners you know like he understands the world of sin he writes in all of his letters to people that are sinning uh, he understands that outside of God no one does what is good no one is righteous everybody is devastated um, everybody imperfectly repents everybody takes a, a step and then two steps back everybody fails everybody agonizes within the kingdom of God he's not attacking strugglers and additionally, he says in Ephesians 2, just a few chapters earlier, that we are saved not by forgoing swearing, not by never having a one-night stand, not by, you know, getting rid of our Instagram account. 
That's not how we're saved. We're saved only by the merits of Christ and only by audacious, scandalous grace. That's the only reason you're here today, the only reason you're in the kingdom. It has nothing to do whatsoever uh, with your ability with your ability to finally master all of your sin and get it out of your life. As great as getting sin out of your life is, uh, we're only saved by grace. His point is this, and he says it later, you are light. He doesn't say you might be light if you stop all this stuff. He says you already are light, so don't walk in darkness. What he is saying to you is this, you aren't damned. So don't act like you are. Don't function as if you're damned when you are not damned. Because the Messiah, to whom you've been attached by faith, sacramentally and outwardly by baptism, the Messiah to whom you are attached is goodness and civility. And he births in you goodness and civility so that the light within you is matched by the light in your functionality, how you walk, talk, act, breathe in the world. So if we are not damned, we must not function as if we are. Additionally, uh, I speak this to Christians who are strugglers, just like me. Everybody in this room is. If we are convicted, slammed down, pinched, and even tormented by these ethical texts of the New Testament, we have a place to go. Uh, Whenever the voice of the law, the voice of justice, afflicts you, do not turn to your own inner power to do better next time. Instead, turn to Christ. Uh, Remember what the great uh, Lutheran scholar Gerhard Ferde once wrote, the only solution to the absolute is absolution. The only solution to the absolute is absolution. You go to Christ for mercy. You go to Christ for unconditionality. You go to Christ for solidity. Go to Christ for love. Go to Christ for redefinition. Go to Christ for empowerment. But you start with your Christ and your identity in said Christ. That's where you turn when you are slammed by these difficult passages. So that's my excursus, excursus over. Now, let's begin where Paul begins in verses 1 and 2. Not with sternness about sin, but with our new identification in God's Messiah. So be imitators of God. Let me now talk about mirroring and modeling. You've heard of personality mirroring. That is when you uh, subconsciously and instinctively emulate people whom you admire. You emulate how they speak, how they stand, what they buy, how they inflect, how they behave, how they raise children. Well, Paul wants that for us. He says in verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What a wild thing to write to a bunch of Turkish peasants. Be imitators of God. Like, shoot for the stars, boys and girls. Be imitators of God. Now, I think it's remarkable to consider what he doesn't say. Paul does not write, be imitators of me. Now, he does that in other places. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, but he doesn't here. He doesn't say, uh, you probably have one non-neurotic parent. Imitate them. You know, if you have a somewhat decent parent who isn't totally, you know, off the shelf, like, you should try to do what you can to copy their own lifestyle in your life. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say there are, uh, you know, a hundred uh, semi-decent, well, not, not if you read too closely, somewhat decent Old Testament heroes. Uh, maybe you should emulate them. You know, uh, that awful moralistic hymn, Dare to be a Daniel. You know, dare to be a Daniel. See what you can do, you know. 
be better, you know, follow, follow, be like Abraham half the time. Um, you know, <laughs> a little dodgy, a little dodgy. Um, but and he could have even depersonalized it and said, you know, the, the great Roman and Greek virtues, you know, establish yourself as a good stoic, you know, uh, live into the virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Be like Marcus Aurelius, or at least be like the, um, the virtues that he extolled. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't start with a person. He doesn't start with himself. He doesn't start with, with uh, conceptual virtues. He says, be an imitator of God. When it comes to personality mirroring, Paul goes as high as anybody can go. Um, now, he is not coming up with this concept, whole cloth. He's not inventing it. He is rewinding to the earliest texts within Judaism, those early Genesis texts that shape his framework of reality. And in those texts, we learn about the unique dignity of the human race, namely that we are made in the image of God. So Genesis begins by saying the maker and creator of all things has not made nor created all things to reflect him equally. They don't. Uh, the Alps are grand. The spring in Ireland is sublime. A Saharan sunset is exquisite. Paris is okay. Uh, that was very funny what I just said. Um, but <laughs> as grand as all those things are, they're not as grand as you. And what's more, when God says in Genesis, let us make man and woman in our image and likeness, he is speaking about all people, not some people. Because in the ancient world, it was believed by some groups that the heavens or the transcendent was reflected in certain individuals, in a king, in an emperor, in a general, in a cleric, in the wealthy. In some cultures, it was God or the gods were reflected in men, but not women. In some cultures, it was a particular race of people. What's fascinating in Genesis is not that it says Abraham, the founder of Israel, was made in God's image and likeness, but that Adam was, and all of Adam's progeny are, meaning all of you, all of us. Uh, regardless of our uh, class, regardless of our language, our skin color, our background, all of us, whether you're tall or short, happy by disposition or hostile by disposition, whether you have a learning impairments or not, whether you love God, whether you hate God, all made in the image and likeness of the transcendent deity. And what scripture is doing throughout the entirety of the canon is to relink us to our identity as image bearers. Because what sin does is not only skew that image within us, but it blinds us to our own dignity. It blinds us to the fact uh, that we had a sacred origin and that much of that sacred origin exists even through fallenness. It persists through sin. And so uh, our vocation, according to scripture, is to always mirror the one in whose image we were made. Uh, to be so grounded in that image that we reflect God in the world. And this is found throughout Scripture. It's found uh, in the Exodus account in, Le in Leviticus where God repeatedly says, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. There's a link, an indissoluble link between God and the reflectors of God. The same thing is said in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Meaning, I want you to match God so well that you reflect his light to the world. That's that idea. Well, Scripture grounds us in this, in this concept because it's trying to give us back our dignity that was lost at the fall. 
where we were once created to be perfect image bearers, uh, Paul is saying, reoccupy that image. Realize who you are. Um, So let's talk about that dignity for a minute because redemption gives us a myriad of gifts, but a massive gift within the redemptive framework of Christ is your own redignification. And uh, I want you to consider your dignity in God that is being re-gifted to you at the cross just for a minute. So I have a friend who was a minister in a fancy part of uh, New Jersey, and she had a, a lot of parishioners that were very fancy. And one of them was this very um, stately uh, African-American woman named uh, Teresa. And uh, Teresa was one of these uh, women who just carried herself with such uh, exquisite charm and, and, and an erudite quality that she was very intimidating. So my friend, the pastor, was very alarmed when Teresa uh, called the pastor from jail <laughs> and said, you wouldn't believe what I just did. I just punched a lady in the throat. <laughs> and my, my pastor friend said, you did what? I'll be right there. Uh, so she got the full story. Uh, and so Teresa, this uh, older uh, distinguished mother, had a young daughter late in life, a young daughter named Alicia. And Alicia had progeria. Some of you know what progeria is. Progeria is uh, a malady uh, that uh, children have from their birth in which they look very young. Excuse me. They look very old, even though they're very young, very wrinkled. The children who have progeria usually don't live past their 10th birthday, but it's a very evident malady. Well, anyway, uh, Teresa loved to take her daughter to different stores and to restaurants just so she would be acclimated to the, you know, the warp and woof of life. But she would often get stared down and, and people would point and ask questions and you know how people are. They were at this uh, counter sampling perfume at, an, at, at a uh, some fancy Macy's store, and uh, and these two older women kept looking at the daughter and kept pointing at her and whispering to each other. Uh, and finally, Teresa heard one of them say to the other, about five feet away, yes, yes, I see it. So Teresa went up to this woman and said, wait a minute, did you just call my daughter an it? And the woman said, yes, I called it an it. And Teresa um, has a really great left hook (laughs) and slammed the lady, meant to hit her face, but hit her throat and went to jail. Uh, And so my my friend said, look, you, um, you know, I don't advise punching old ladies in the throat, but, but your impulse was to defend your daughter's dignity. And that other woman did not recognize your daughter's dignity. And that's a wicked thing. She was defending the Imago Dei. She was defending the image of God within her daughter. She was defending her daughter against a a world that would make her daughter feel like nothing. And I hope to God you can see God's left hook ready to protect you because you're cared for, because you actually matter, because no matter what sullied stories and narratives you have playing in your own mind and things that make you feel inconsequential and ugly and stupid and rancid and gross, that God does not share that perspective. Because you are made of the stuff of heaven. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, God loved you in that place too and sent Jesus to forgive as well as redignify. Be imitators of God. But also he talks about modeling. 
It's very important. So he begins in verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. But then modeling, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, what's interesting is um, he focuses on a mode of being for us. He says, I want you to walk in love. Now, we talked about walking before. Walking in Pauline literature means function or acting out. Uh, So he wants you to function in love as Christ loved us. That's mimicking language. Christ loved us. Now I need you to love, and I need you to walk in the same love in which Christ loved us. You know, walking uh, is, of course, a learned activity. Babies begin to be interested in walking, so they start crawling, and later they start walking. But, of course, how does this happen? Well, they, they see evidences of walking, right? So when my daughter Ella was crawling around, she would look at her elder sister, Cora, and be angry that she could not do what Cora was doing. And Ella had like this weird limpy thing going on with her left leg. So she would crawl in loops like on the floor to get anywhere, which was awesome to watch and, and a great source of like internal mockery from her, <laughs> from her non-integrated parents. Um, but um, but what, what did she do? She would stare at her sister who was walking around and therefore be inspired, partially out of desire, partially out of jealousy, to start, um, to start, you know, picking herself up, scooting along, you know, end tables and things like that, to emulate walking. And then she would uh, try walking by herself without anything to grab onto, take a few steps and then tumble down, cry, get up and do it again. Why? So she could be like her elder sister. Walking was embodied in her sister, so she could look at it and start to learn it. Similarly, we need a model of what love looks like in order to love well. Because if love remains an abstraction, like happiness, like intelligence, we as created beings were made to emulate bereft. We need something more than the conceptual. And this is why we believe in the incarnation in part. The incarnation precedes emulation. Something needs to be fleshed out in order for it to be seen and lived out in us. And so Paul doesn't just say, um, emulate God's love. He gives us a human model. This is fascinating. So he says, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us. In other words, he doesn't say just be imitators of God. He says be imitators of the God who has made himself human. Karl Barth always said that if you want to understand God, you have to look at a man. That is, look at Jesus Christ and you will understand God. That's the Christian paradox. If you want to get close to God, you have to get close to the God-man in whom God was fully disclosed to us. Because how else could we possibly conceive of or even mirror God's essence? You can't. How do you like image God in you outside of a Christ? Think about all the omnis, you know, from Theology 101, all of God's innate characteristics. Think of them. Uh, there's omnipotence, right, being all-powerful. I mean, you're good, but you ain't that good. Um, omniscience, all being all-knowing. Some of you occasionally think you are, but then life shows you otherwise. Omnipresence, trying to be all places at all times. Some of you are trying to do this now, trying to please everyone, and it's not working out so well. Or omnitemporal, right, that you're outside of time and yet within the timeline. Those omnis, friends, of God's innate essence are not gainable by us. We cannot mirror those things in God and ought not to try. So when God 
uh, inspires Paul to write these words, be imitators of God, he gives us a person in whom the deity is fully present, who breathed our air, who dipped his hand into the world, and it came out bloody. This is the one who walked in love. He healed with love, taught with love, confronted with love, consoled with love, and died for the sake of love so that he could offer a fragrant sacrifice to God, one that was effective for the forgiveness of sinners. Jesus shows us who God is. Jesus enfleshes God to the point where God then becomes emulatable because God has manifested himself like us as one of us. There's a a, a famous uh, story about the theologian uh, Tom Torrance, who was a chaplain who was fighting in World War II, Um, and uh, after a very uh, bloody battle, he came up uh, to a soldier whom he had believed uh, was dead, but all of a sudden the soldier's eyes opened and and made eye contact with him as the chaplain saw his little cross on his lapel and and beckoned for him to come closer. So Tom Torrance gets on his knees, wraps this bloody soldier up in his arms, stares at him, and the soldier, with tears in his eyes, said, Tell me, Padre, is God really like Jesus. And this was the turning point in Tom Torrance's life because he could only offer one word before the soldier was going to die and to see what lies beyond this darkness. And Tom Torrance said, yes, yes. It isn't so much that Christ is godly, but that God is Christly. That God is like Christ. And that is a God in flesh whom is, who is emulatable. There's something beautiful in his character, something infectious in his character that can shape the warp and woof of our lives. And so Jesus is the model whom we mirror. The loving Christ is the God whom we emulate. So playing God does not mean power plays, autonomy, proving our knowledge or righteousness. Instead, it means serving, suffering, and loving in a Christic manner. So Paul's invitation to us is to play God. This is the foundation, by the way, of all virtuous development. Rediscover your image. Rediscover who you are to be shaped by the model that is Jesus Christ. And so I invite you in closing to play God today. I invite you to play God. Play God when your boss misuses you and dismisses you by gracefully and firmly standing up for yourself and your own dignity. I invite you to play God with your friends and not jump down their throats for their uh, colossal imperfections, but instead be noticeably long-suffering, just as God is. I invite you to play God when you see justice eroding in our society and stand for what is true, but not with snarky rage or online passive aggression, but with compassionate strength. I invite you to play God with imperfect salesmen and bad waitresses and waiters, And not act like a jerk because they act like a jerk, but to imagine a world in which sometimes bad employees are bad employees because they're just having a bad day. Maybe just like you. I invite you to play God by refusing to be co-opted by fear-mongering media companies who get paid for your panic because they want you to trust that they are sovereign, but somehow God isn't. I invite you to play God by absolving the sins of your parents and your family. Now, some of you have been sinned against in horrific abusive ways. And that might mean keeping a safe different distance for 25 years. That's fine. But forgive them for your sake. Don't let that erode you as a person. 
And that'll take years, but it's a journey uh, worth taking. And I invite you to play God by giving your money away to twitchy vagrants on the street. God will sort out how they use those funds by honoring your body and your God-given sexuality and not, not by tearing the world apart with dark gossip. I invite you to love little girls with progeria, men with MS, overeaters, body starvers, rageaholics, addicts, and verbal processors who don't know when to quit verbally processing. <laughs> Why? Because your heavenly father loves you and loves them just as much as he loves you. In short, friends, I invite you to play God in order that you might reclaim your God-given dignity, to realize the vitality and strength of your person in Christ, realize what you are, the glorious stuff of which you are made, and thus mirror to the world the wild love of God that is modeled in the wild love of Christ. And have a great time when you do it. Amen.